going to pray for Joe as he begins and over all of those who will be sharing this morning. Father God, we thank you that you are so near to us. We feel it in this room. And we pray we could just continue in that worshipful posture that you would set each of the people that are coming to speak your words to us this morning, set them free. Give them joy and a deep sense of your delight in them, deep sense that this is the good work that you prepared for them ahead of time for them to walk in this morning. So we invite your spirit to continue speaking to us. In your holy name we pray, amen. Hi, my name is uh, Joe Tanian. I'm one of the elders here at Grace Church. And I think the Bible is an amazing book. It's a book of 66 books written by 40 authors on three continents in three languages over a period of 2,000 years and contains a single unified message, redeeming plan of God for mankind. And it does this without contradiction. The book is a miracle. Not only is the book a miracle, but chapter after chapter, page after page, there are stories of God reaching down and touching people's lives supernaturally. What type of Bible would we have if we removed all the miracles? You know, Thomas Jefferson was an amazing patriot. He is one of Virginia's finest heroes. He was a Renaissance man, a man of science and a man of faith. But did you know that he created his own New Testament? What he did was he cut out all the miracles and he set them aside and he kept what was left. No healings, no feeding of the thousands, no resurrection, no Pentecost, no one hoping that Peter's shadow might fall on him, them. You know, as Christians, we might be offended by that. Others may think it's absurd. A Bible without miracles, really? But we might be more like Jefferson than we realize. What we've done is we've taken those same scissors, or many of us have taken those same scissors and have cut miracles out of our faith. We've preserved our Bibles, but our faith, our expectations, and as a result, our lives do not include the miraculous. Well, God can change that. You know, I envision that Grace Church at this moment is sort of like Nathan under the fig tree. God, Jesus, is calling out to us. And he's saying, I saw you. You sold your building. You crossed the river. You have received the land that I have prepared for you. And now you are getting ready to build a building, a church building. And you marvel, and you should. But I have so much more for you than this. I want to build a living and breathing church, a church of living stones, where each of you, I'm sorry, where each of you who are willing to be rejected by man will be built up into a holy 
spiritual house, a holy priesthood, accepted by God through Jesus Christ. And I want to take all those miracles that Jefferson had cut out of his Bible, and I want to paste them into your lives. You know, th that's what I envision for Grace Church. And I'm hoping that Jack Deere, through this book on the Holy Spirit, will help guide us. In our roundtables, uh, we will be assigned two short chapters each week to read. And in the class time, we'll maybe share a testimony, and then we'll read some key points from Jack Deere, and we'll discuss them. The class will be constructed in such a way where even if you happen to not read that week or miss the previous week, you'll still be able to benefit and participate. So who is Jack Deere? You know, 35 years ago, Jack Deere was a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. He was also a pastor of a growing church, but his congregation, he taught his congregation not to believe in miracles, that they had died out with the apostles. But God reached down and started to shift Jack Deere's theology. Based on his study, Jack began to believe that miracles were possible. And he had a friend, a trusted friend, who encouraged him to attend a John Wimber meeting. So cautiously, Jack attended, and he actually really loved the message that John Wimber was giving. But at the end of the message time, John Wimber announced, it's clinic time. So I'm going to read from that part from the book. I thought, clinic time? Oh, this is where things get weird. Wimber prayed, come Holy Spirit, and then went silent for two minutes. I think the Lord will heal back pain, he said. Many people came down to the front of the church to be prayed for by teams of church members. After a few minutes, he said, there is a woman here who have severe back pain, but you haven't come forward yet. Come forward, I think the Lord will heal you. But no woman came forward. I thought, poor John Wimber. He was doing so well when he was just talking about the kingdom. If he hadn't have tried this clinic stuff, the meeting would have been such a success tonight. I felt embarrassed and disappointed for him. Wimber did not share my embarrassment or my disappointment. He announced a second fact about the woman. He said, you went to the doctor several days ago. You had this pain for years. Please come forward. Still, no woman came forward. Wimber was quiet for a moment. Then with a grandfatherly smile, he said, your name is Margaret. Now, Margaret, you get up and come down here right now. <laughs> About halfway down the center section next to the aisle, Margaret got up and began to walk sheepishly toward the front. I thought this was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. This was like one of those Old Testament prophets who could see what was going on in the bedroom of the enemy commanders. The room was filled with awe and conviction. 
But before Margaret made it down to the front of the church, a wave of skepticism and disgust came over me. I said to myself, this is too good to be true. What if he paid her to do this? What if she's Margaret on Thursday night here in Fort Worth, Texas, and then on Saturday night in some other city, she's Mabel, walking down to the front of the church, carrying an envelope with two malignant tumors. She coughed up. A wave of skepticism welled up within Jack Deere. Can you relate to that? In one moment, he's pressing forward into the Holy Spirit and his spirit is being enlarged. The next moment, the enemy attempts to snatch it away. You know, our culture honors skepticism. You know, and if we're not careful as Christians, we, it can lead to a critical spirit and doubt that will damage our faith. Well, I'm not going to finish the story. You're going to have to attend our meeting to hear the end of it. But I want to let you know that Jack Deere was surprised by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what I'm praying for each of you. If you want, I have some copies of the book afterwards, and um, you could buy them online. Thank you. Good morning, Grace. My name is Christian Hemi, and I will lead the Apostles' Creed around the table group. Um, this group is uh, discussing Christian beliefs, um, especially those that every professing Christian really ought to believe, and we do that under the framework of the Apostles' Creed. Um, recently, Brian has been using the analogy here in service of a pier, um, where the pier represents the true church held up by thick, strong posts of core beliefs. Um, then various catwalks shoot off that pier, and those represent the emphases or preferences of a particular church. And it's those peer items that we aim to focus on in this group. And one very simple instance of a core post is what we celebrated just a few weeks ago, that Jesus Christ is God and that he took on our humanity and came into our world. So this spring, we will actually be continuing from the fall. However, let not your heart be troubled if you did not come in the fall. Um, please do come still, um, even if you missed out the last go around. I'll do some recapping so that we're all on the same page. And at any rate, we only managed to get through the first two lines of the creed. I, I believe in God the Father, almighty creator of heaven and earth. So that leaves a whopping 16 lines <laughs> for us to work out during the next eight weeks. Um, just to quickly repeat why this class is so important to me, I grew up in a church, um, churches that didn't really carefully or systematically teach what Christians ought to believe. Um, and then in high school and college, and I think in large part because of this lack of, of knowledge and training, um, my heart was not for the Lord. Um, I wandered away from him. And in several ways, I was definitively living in opposition to him. So um, this group is really designed to be the kind of group I wish I had in, in high school and college in those churches that I was attending. Um, we will introduce and discuss a series of Christian beliefs so that we can be instructed and encouraged from the word, the historical church, and each other as the Holy Spirit gives enlightenment. So just a taste of the group, something we discussed in the fall. Uh, one concept we talked about uh, when thinking about who God is, I believe in God the Father, um, is that he is maximally perfect, the greatest conceivable being, 
and there's a Latin phrase for this, so you know it's legit because there's a Latin phrase for it. It's he's the summum bonum, and you can kind of hear it in there. The the sum, the summum, the totality, and bonum, like bonus. Bonuses are always a good thing, right? Um, so this idea of the summum bonum or perfect being theology was introduced by Saint Augustine, more fully thought about and described in the Middle Ages by brilliant Christian thinkers like Saint Anselm and Thomas Aquinas. And it continues today to be a source of contemplation and inspiration for the greatest theologians and philosophers in our day. Now the Bible speaks of God's ultimate perfection um, a lot. <laughs> um, we could probably spend the next couple hours just reading scriptural passages that speak to this idea, but I'll give you just a few so that we can properly ground our belief in scripture, right? In Deuteronomy 32.4, Moses declares about God, the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. And then Isaiah 40.25, to whom then will you compare me that I should be like him? This is the Lord speaking. Says the Holy One, have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. And then Psalm 1830, this God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. And finally, in Romans 11, 33 through 36, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or ha who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever, amen. So God is perfect in every way. In fact, he is the very benchmark of perfection in each of these areas. So an example of this would be if you were to watch a nature show on a high definition television, the benchmark of high definition would be to actually be there in person on the plains of the Serengeti as the cheetah stalks the antelope. And that is what God is for each one of these concepts. He's the very standard of reference, the very benchmark of greatness. Now that might seem fairly straightforward. That might make sense as I say those things. But I think it can be a little difficult to grasp how God's perfection is at work in the world. For example, God is perfectly powerful, but he is also perfectly humble. He is perfectly kind, but he also disciplines perfectly. He is perfectly loving, and he is perfect in his wrath. So those things can be intention and those are the kinds of things we discuss in our group during these meetings. But this tension for me is what makes the idea of summum bonum so practical in my own life. It has greatly helped me in my Christian walk, especially when life is painful. If God really is ultimate perfection, perfect goodness, then I can trust him completely in the midst of suffering when I don't understand at all why God is allowing these circumstances. Why does my career seem to be failing? Why do I have this sickness in my body? Why are my family relationships so difficult? As I'm sure we've all experienced, we often do not get clear answers to those honest questions, but we can know beyond any shadow of a doubt that God has a good reason. 
He sees the big picture from beginning to end for every person, and this pain will genuinely be worth it in the end for all eternity. God really does work all things together for the good of those who love him. Hope to see you next Sunday. Put it back. Good morning. My name is Jimmy Kirschberger. Uh, Joe and Christian did a, a really good job of convincing you guys to come to their class. I went a different direction and developed a smear campaign against the other the other classes. But now I feel bad, so I'm gonna scrap that. Um, don't even get me started on Phil Germeroth. Um, we all have blind spots, both physically and figuratively. Um, where, your, where your optic nerve comes into your retina, you, you can't see anything. Uh, have any of you done an experiment where you've seen, been able to see a blind spot, like a, a little dot on a card? How many of you have done that before? Okay, yeah, so, so you know there's a, a spot where you literally don't see anything, and your brain just fills in that area for you so that you can function, and normally it's not a big deal because it's a pretty small spot. I've often thought about uh, what if you could get small enough and like sneak up on somebody right in the blind spot, but I've... I've never tried it, but um, so this book uh, kind of uh, acts as a similar kind of test to help us look at blind spots and figure out where those blind spots are. Uh, it's called Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes, and just uh, kind of one example that they um, that they gave right in the introduction that I thought was was really helpful was. Um, the story of the prodigal son is probably one of the most well-known stories in the whole Bible. People who don't read the Bible or have never read a word of the Bible have probably at least heard of the prodigal son. And um, a man was doing a, a seminary class where he had students read the story of the prodigal son and then close their Bibles and turn to a classmate and tell the story as best as they could remember it. And not one of the people who told the story, there was only 12 of them, so a pretty small sample size, but not one of them mentioned that there was a famine that led to the son uh, having to um, return back to his, to his father. So the professor was interested by that and expanded his study to like a hundred people. So he did the same thing with a hundred and out of a hundred, I think six of them mentioned the famine. And then he had the opportunity to, to do the same thing in St. Petersburg, Russia with 50 students. And out of the 50, 46 of them mentioned the famine as an important part of the story. And we here in America don't have a whole lot of experience with famine. So when we read a story like that, that's kind of a blind spot. We kind of read past it, and we know famines occur. They occur in other places, just not really any a part of my life. And St. Petersburg, 70 years earlier, had been uh, besieged by the Nazis, and over, over half a million people had died in a three-year-long famine. So even these students who were reading the story and recounting it didn't themselves experience a famine, but it was a part of their... Um, communal consciousness. It was something that was very real to them and they understood uh, what it meant. So how does that 
affect our interpretation? Well, um, our, our primary focus on the prodigal son story is right there in what we call it, the prodigal son. Uh, the word prodigal is not in the Bible anywhere. Uh, prodigal has to do with wastefulness. So our emphasis when we read the prodigal son story often tends to be on the son's wastefulness. And surely that's a factor. But that story is also a, a part of the third in a set of stories about the lost sheep and the lost coin. And some Bibles will call that story the lost son. Uh, in fact, a lot of uh, other translations from other languages and other cultures emphasize much more um, the, the forgiveness of the father and the joy of the father having his son back, similar to the joy of the shepherd receiving the lost sheep and finding the lost coin. So that gives us uh, just a, a little example of something that, that we don't even realize that we don't see. So the book talks a lot about uh, things that go without saying in our own culture. And so just taking an opportunity to, to read and discuss the things that go without saying in our culture and how they affect our reading of the scriptures. Um, it was really, really fun for me to read this book, and I look forward to discussing it. There's, uh, we'll have, oh, it'll work well, it looks like, to read one chapter a week and then be able to discuss it. I'm, I am by no means an expert on this. I won't be teaching about it. I'll just be sitting down and discussing it with anybody who wants to discuss it. And the, at the end of each chapter, they give um, some additional questions to ponder, some discussion questions, give you another passage or two to read based on what we talked about in this chapter. How do you read this story now? So there's a, a chapter on um, how we feel about time and our cultural, the cultural significance of time and how that affects the way that we read race and ethnicity, relationships, um, the difference between individuality and communal living. Um, so there's a whole lot of things in here that I would love to sit down and discuss with you. I found that you can... Uh, I think Liberty's Library has this. You can check it out as an ebook. Um, yeah, so I look forward to hopefully talking with you guys about it. Thank you, Jimmy K, for not uh, smearing me. <laughs> Appreciate that. <clears throat> My name is Phil Germerost. Um, I will not be teaching Jesus the Carpenter class this spring. I've already taught it three times. But uh, this class, this time I'll be teaching, <clears throat> is a natural outgrowth of that class. And, um, and that, with that said, Jesus the Carpenter class is not a prerequisite to this class. It just flows right into it. And we'll kind of look back like Christian said he's going to have to do. Um, but several years ago, the topic of, of um, identity has been percolating in my spirit for, for several years now. And um, even way before we started teaching uh, the class, the other class, and then um, whenever I'd 
read the word identity or I hear it, it was like it was amplified. But the Lord always brings something to my mind. So I've been studying over it for probably four or five years now. And the neat thing that happened with the uh, looking at Jesus' humanity is what we did in the um, carpenter class. It brought me to seeing Jesus in the context that he lived in and his humanity and the blessing that that was to me. And, the, and what I learned is the more I saw Jesus, the more I began clearly to see my own authentic identity in him. And so that, that's kind of blossomed into what this class is now. It's a journey that I've been on. I'm not at the end of it yet. And I'm glad to have you all join me in this journey. The topic of identity is something that's very crucial in our, in our culture right now. I mean, if our culture has ever been more screwed up and with an identity crisis, I don't know if it's ever been, at least not in my life. Um, and the church, we are not exempt from this crisis either. <clears throat> so with that in mind, I want to make a pretty bold statement, and then I'm going to make a couple comments about that statement. The statement is, knowing your authentic identity in Christ is foundational, even essential, for spiritual transformation and experiencing the abundant life Jesus has for us. I'll say it again. I wish I had a PowerPoint to show you, but knowing your authentic identity in Christ is foundational, even essential for spiritual formation and transformation and experiencing the abundant life Jesus came to give you. <clears throat> At first, the idea of spiritual transformation. When I think of that, I go to Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, what Paul does, he writes this letter to Romans, and he writes one to Ephesians. They both, they both can be kind of separated in similar ways. First 11 chapters of Romans and the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul, <clears throat> Paul is talking about who we are in Christ, what Christ has done for us. Identity, identity, identity. And then he transitions for the rest of the, each letter to, okay, here's how you walk out. Here's how you live that identity. In each book, in each letter, there's a pivotal point. In Romans, it's 12.2. <clears throat> and in Ephesians, it's Ephesians chapter 4, kind of starting in verse 1, go to verse 17, and then in verse 23. And in both of those, he's moving from identity, and then there's this process not a that goes from a, it, it's it's the truth that you move as you begin to walk it out you're moving do not be conformed to the world but be transformed how do you be transformed by the renewing of your mind with what how do you renew your mind and what do you do it with <clears throat> it's kind of like I can see Paul doing a head slap saying with what I just wrote to you you know how I just identified you the other thing I want to bring out is this word authentic identity. Why do I throw that qualifier in there? <clears throat> what is authentic identity? Well, when you go to identify yourself or you identify someone, we have different levels of identifying people. First and foremost, visual. I see Brian, I know that's Brian. I see Joe, I know that's Joe. And there's diff other different levels of our vocation and what we do for a living, um, our, our worth, uh, financial worth, if we're a business person, we're identified by that. If you're an athlete, and these are all, I call those like self-accomplished self identifiers. And those are okay. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. 
It's natural. But the thing of it is, is they are temporal. They can be wiped out in no time, you know. Um, look at the, the, the NFL player, DeMar Hamlin, a couple weeks ago, falls dead on the field with a heart attack. He's resuscitated two times. He's recovering, but will he ever be a national fo NFL football player again? We don't know. So he's gone through some identity issues right now, I think. Um, so that's what I mean, and those are, those are kind of surface level identifiers, but what I mean by authentic is your deepest level, your core level, who you are spiritually. That spiritual level of identity, which wells up, that is your source of being, who you really are. And we'll talk about that more in class. And some of you may be thinking, especially older ones, maybe those in the swag group, <clears throat> may be thinking, well, identity issues are for the young people, for the high schoolers, those are in college and getting out of college, and they're for the uh, less spiritual mature. Um, I've already worked through all the issues. Well, I don't want to burst your bubble, but I'm going to. Uh, we're never too old or too mature to have our, to be exempt from our authentic identity being challenged. For example, Jesus. Yeah, I think Paul, Luke says that he was around the age of 30 when he began his public ministry. So he was old enough to have uh, identi identity issues settled for himself. And I'd say he's probably pretty spiritually mature, too. So if you look at Jesus at the beginning of his public ministry, the um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Synoptic Gospels, they each tell the story, give the account very similar, and they each say, you know, Jesus comes out of the water after his baptism, the Spirit descends on him like a dove, and a voice comes out. Matthew says, this is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Mark and Luke say, you are my beloved Son, and you are well pleased. You know, some people can raise a big issue about that, but I think it's the who that is directed to. God is saying this to the audience, to the, to the crowds that are there, letting them know, this is my beloved son. And then he's saying it also to Jesus. Maybe Jesus need his, needed, to be, his, uh, needed to see his identity, his core identity, who he is. And right after that, immediately, it's like God tells Jesus, you're my beloved son and you're well pleased. Pack your bags and head to the desert because that's where the Spirit leads him next, in the desert for 40 days where he's tempted. And two of those three temptations, what is being questioned? His identity. If you're the son of God, turn this bread, turn this stone into bread. If you're the son of God, jump off this tower and, and live. Each time his identity is challenged. And we know, sometimes we think that might be the only three temptations that Jesus had. But I think he was tempted throughout his life. His identity was challenged throughout his life, especially during his, his public ministry. <clears throat> we know that by um, Hebrews 4.15. says, we have a high priest who has been, who we have a high priest who can sympathize with us in our weaknesses, who has been tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. And then, especially on the cross, during that time, Jesus was um, he's struggling for every breath he takes. The crowds are mocking him, are yelling at him. 
in the crowd, there's the religious leaders, there's the uh, priests, and even right next to him, there's a thief on the cross encouraging him to show himself who, you know, to prove to us that you are the Son of God. And the crowd really doesn't expect, because the crowd doesn't believe who he is. They're a bunch of the Jewish people. And, you know, I kind of think that, hey, they're maybe giving him one more chance to prove who he is. They don't believe who he is, most of them. They're, you know, they're mocking him because he's a curse to them. He's, a, he's, an, he's a, an embarrassment to the people because Deuteronomy says in the law, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. So he's an embarrassment to them. They're mocking him, making fun of him by saying, come down from the cross, you son of God, ha, 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 kind of thing. So how does Jesus respond to all this, to this attack on his identity? Luke records that Jesus' response is, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus' first response, look at two things there. His first response is, Father. It goes right back to his identity. You are my beloved son. And he goes back to his father, and he, and, and, and he banks on that. And he is solid in that, and he's solid as a rock on that. And then his prayer to the father is, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. His thoughts, his concern is for the crowds, very people who are mocking him, very people who put him there. Um, <clears throat> so no matter who you are, no matter what your age is, where your spiritual level of maturity is, your authentic identity will be attacked, will be challenged. And um, usually that goes on in your mind, that whole battle. I think you understand if you've been a believer for years, you'll understand that battle. And um, it probably goes on until the day we die. A word of personal testimony, I experienced this. Um, it would be the last week between Christmas and New Year's this past, this past uh, season, a couple weeks ago. Been preparing for this class. Got reams of notes to go over and put these lessons together. And the last week, I don't know what happened. Now that I look back at it, I do know what happened. Um, I was under, under attack. My identity, my... Um, I don't even know what, don't even remember what was happening that week. I don't know if I was kind of taking a, looking back at the year, looking ahead to the new year since it's the end of the year, where I'm at, and I'm getting constantly, every day that week in my mind, it's like so-and-so is here in their life, and, you know, they're grandparents at this time, and they got great kids and great grandkids, and, you know, their house is like this, and I'm thinking of what my situation is, and I'm you know, pointing out all the negatives and stuff. And I'm thinking about this class, and it's like, you don't deserve to teach another class. You're not good enough. You've done this. You've thought this. And by Friday of that week, I was that close to emailing Kirsten and saying, I'm not going to be able to teach this spring. The next morning, I, got, I didn't do that. And the next morning, Saturday morning, I got up like I usually do. Go down you know, about 5 o'clock in the morning, go down do the financial stuff for the family, for the house, and then I study. I get down there, and something keeps, something keeps telling me, read Romans, read Romans. I'm thinking, how much? Romans, you it's like, just start reading. So I started reading. I get to chapter 7, and then it hits me. It's Romans 7 syndrome. If you know what Romans 7 is, that's where Paul has his struggle. He's talking about grace and law throughout 
first part of Romans. But in, Rome, in, in chapter 7, he gets really personal. And, he, and I'm going to sum it up very briefly. It's not as great as he develops it. But um, he goes through this struggle that the things that I really want to do, that I wish to do, that I know I should do, I can't do them. And those things that I hate doing, I don't want to do, that's what I keep doing. And it builds and it builds and it builds till finally he says, a wretched man that I am, who will save me from this death? Notice the interrogative pronoun there. It's not what, but who. It's a person. Who will save me from this body of death? Next verse, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And it hit me so hard. It was like Jesus reaching down, picking up my chin, picking up my head by the chin, looking in my eyes and saying, Phil, that's what I've been trying to teach you. And um, I've been trying to teach you to renew your mind, daily basis, hourly basis, whatever it takes, to remember your authentic identity, who you are in me. You are not your last sin. You're not your last mistake. You're not your past mistakes. Your, your behavior does not define who you are. You are my child. You are accepted in the beloved. You're adopted, you're redeemed, you're forgiven, dot, dot, dot. Focus on that, renew your mind with that. So that's the challenge that's going to come. That's what we're going to do in the class. It's, we're going to look mainly at Ephesians 1 through 3. There's a whole list of things that we have, and we're going to develop those. It's still a journey. And how we respond to these challenges, to our identity, will be the degree to how we really experience the abundant life that he's given us. So I encourage you, if the Lord is leading you that way, to join me on that journey. Thank you. These have all been so beautiful. I kind of feel like crying, you know, and just want to thank the Lord for people's vulnerability. When you stand up here and you start sharing these things, you feel, oh, you feel a little exposed, right? So we just bless you, Jesus, for people's hearts, all the authenticity that's being shared, and hope I can continue. <laughs> so I'm leading that art gathering for Around the Table. And art and painting specifically came into my life as a result of an answer to prayer. I was 24 when we had Liam, and as a first-time mom, that love for him was kind of consuming, and I mean, I, I don't think I had ever loved anyone quite that way before, because I knew I had to do a good job at this, and it, it came on like a flood, like this little person God's entrusted me with, and I cared so deeply about it, and we were in the middle of doing youth ministry here, and that was you know, pulling us in directions and there were needs to meet and serving and I cared deeply. And I remember praying this prayer, and maybe you've prayed this before, it was like, we might even say it and think we're just like expressing it, but it's like, Lord, I need to get a life. <laughs> right, and it sounds kind of like a complaint or a joke, but it's like, I need something that isn't someone else. I need something that doesn't belong to someone who needs something. And so I prayed that, and what began was this sweet answer, this like unfolding of God's love for me. Um, 
over the years. And his kind answer, it shaped me and transformed me. And I look back and think, what a ridiculous prayer. I need to get a life because we have a life, right? We just heard all about our life is in Jesus. But for me, it was like, God, do you see me? Do you see me? And he did. So it started as a whisper. It's a good song line, too. But <laughs> that still small voice. It started at Lynchburg Parks and Rec in an open art studio. And at that season of life, um, Brian was home in the mornings because we were doing youth ministry. We were out in the afternoons and evenings. And so I attended an art class. And I thought, I might meet some friends. And this is going to be great. And I went, and it was me and a room full of like master artists who were in their 70s and 80s. And I loved it. I, I absolutely loved it. And I thought, OK, well, there's no one in here my age, but I love this. Um, the only problem was there was no instruction. So I went thinking, someone's going to teach me how to do this. And instead, I'm watching all these people who really knew what they were doing. And I thought, I don't know how to do this. And I felt like I was supposed to make things look exactly like a picture. And the only art class I'd ever seen was Bob Ross on PBS. <laughs> <laughs> and he like harkened back to my love for Mr. Rogers. He was like the grown-up version of that. And um, you know, you're painting happy clouds and trees, and you follow along, right? And so I thought I was going to get that. And instead, I was watching a bunch of people who were very experienced and very good. And I thought, this is a joke, right? Like, what am I doing? I love this, and I don't know what to do. So then the Lord started speaking to me. And he didn't leave me hanging. And he started reminding me of the things that I loved. And reminding me of uh, my grandmother's house. My grandmother was not frumpy. There's not an ounce of frump in my grandmother. And her house was beautiful. It was shades of turquoise and aqua, and the shapes of furniture were lovely, and it was beautiful. You walked through there, and you felt inspired. Everything that was in her home was beautiful. And that beauty had been speaking to me all my life. And then the Lord reminded me of French class and uh, five years of French class, and what I remember, <laughs> it's not the language, <laughs> it was the art and culture section that we did every year, and we went over the art, and the Impressionists, and he's like, you remember you loved Monet? And I did, oh wow, I loved that. Like it spoke to my soul, all the color and the light and the crazy, right? Um, and he's like, why don't you try that? So I had loved art, I always had, but I went to about the lowest income public school system you can imagine. I was bussed into places that looked like a little bit of a war zone. There was no art budget. I did not take art classes. I did not know that I could make art, right? You tell yourself things as a child, and so I was good at school. I loved school. I'm one of those strange people that loved school. I loved studying. I loved spelling. I loved it. I loved like having their classes and the structure of it all. Um, I loved music, and my mom was a singer, my grandmother's a singer, I was a singer. In my mind, we did music. We didn't do art, right? So uh, venturing into painting was kind of like, well, I don't know anything about this. Uh, but what was sweet was the Lord was like, well, what if we painted together? 
What if you paint what you love? And what if you let go of getting it right? And I think those truths could probably speak to all of our lives. Like, what if we let go of having to get it right? What if we did what we loved? What if we did it together with the Lord? So he was teaching me something that I really need from my whole life, about parenting, relationships, every facet of life, but in something sweet like painting, right? And the sweet journey began, and praying that the Lord would give me eyes to see, eyes to see things uh, the way he saw them, the way he made them, that he would guide my hands. I remember distinctly I saw this painting of children that I want to paint that, Lord. And I'm thinking, I don't have any ability to do this. How am I going to do this? Like, let's paint it together. And I did. It was fun. It was just amazing freedom. And maybe more amazing freedom because of my inadequacy. I wasn't trained in art. And I wasn't expected to be good at it. Right? And so there was a freedom of like, well, no one thinks you're supposed to be good at this. And that's taught me a lot through my life. There's a freedom in our dependency on Jesus. In our inadequacy, we have the freedom to, to create beauty. Um, and so then the Lord was like, you know that joy you found? I want you to bring that to other people. And I got to start painting at some homeschool groups. And I look now, because I've since gotten to know really good artists who get the beauty, but also are very skilled and have gone to school for how you sequentially teach children. And I just went straight for the big guns with the kids. I didn't know you were supposed to like do this like process art and all. I just was like, well, I'm going for what's beautiful. So we went straight for Monet, never taught anything. And I, it wasn't basic. We just went for it. And the fun and delight was that I was one of those kids, right? I didn't sit and draw. I didn't have any training. I shouldn't have known how to do art. And yet the Lord taught me. And so the joy over these years of teaching for 17 years now um, is that when someone comes to me and says, well, I don't have an ounce of creativity in me, or I'm not good at this, I can't do this. I'm like, oh, just you wait and see. <laughs> because like Phil was saying, we are made in the image of God, right? So the first thing we know about God is God's the creator. So if you're made in his image, you have creating in you. Uh, it might not be painting, it might be cooking, it might be woodworking, it might be gardening, um, making a beautiful home. It might be painting though, so you should seriously consider that. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the beautiful things that I think in scripture talks about this, um, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. And what's that saying is God's beauty sneaks in. Like we have all sorts of defenses up against God, our sin, our thoughts, our ideologies, our upbringing. But beauty has a way of arresting you, right? Beauty stops you in your tracks sometimes. And that has been the sweet thing of watching God like teach me about who he is and his beauty. And then using art to help people be arrested, to be stopped in their tracks as you gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. One of the sweet ways of just learning to like look at something and try to draw it and try to create the colors that are in it is you're worshiping God. You're enjoying what he made. And... Brian teases me because 
when I get excited about something, he calls it time for show and tell now. <laughs> right? What's show and tell for kids? You bring what you love and you tell other people about it. Well, when we're creating, it's like show and tell. We're delighting in the Father because we're saying, I love this tree you made. I want to try to make it. And really, at the heart of all of us, the freedom in art is we're all imitators, right? If you have any great idea, it's because, as Christian talked about, God was the perfect ultimate expression of it. So the freedom is you can create beauty, you can marvel at his beauty, you can let his beauty transform you, set you free. Um, I have more to say, but uh, I'll just say this. I'm grateful that the Lord heard my cry, that I need to get a life. My unpolished prayer when I felt like I was getting lost, and it's been a sweet gift. And if all of our life is an offering to God, it's an invitation to know him. And this is oftentimes what I would say in class when I would be trying to redirect the students if things are going a little awry. Um, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And there's something about making art that makes you pause and really do that, really think about it. And when you create something, that picture stays in your mind in a powerful way. It puts words to life. So we have a lovely time in our art gathering. It's prayerful. It's fellowship. It's, it's, it's just very refreshing. So you are all welcome to come. <laughs>